0: We're continuing in a sermon series this morning called United We Love and we are talking about uh, the the ways in which uh, the love of God is constantly reaching out and including people that are unexpected and surprising and this is an Old tradition that goes way back in the roots of Scripture. We've talked about the story of Ruth. We talked about the story of Jonah. This week we're going to look at a New Testament story from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter four. Uh, if it was, if there was a greatest hits of the New Testament, uh, this story might be in it. This is the story of the woman at the well, or the story of the Samaritan woman, and it's John chapter four. And we're going to talk about the way in which this story uh, can open up a new way of understanding. Uh, the love of God and the inclusive nature of God's love, and the way that we as followers of Jesus are expected to reach out as well in the example of Jesus. So with all of that being said, let's say a word of prayer before we read Scripture. We like to pray here at Lover's Lane and in Thrive because we believe that this book is not just printed words on a page. It's a living text, and when we invite the Holy Spirit to be part of reading Scripture, it can breathe new life into this text and allow us to see things we might otherwise miss. So let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for this place that we can worship, for uh, the gift of songs that maybe we've never sung before, but words that we found comforting this morning. God, we give you thanks for the story of this unnamed woman at a well in Samaria, and the way in which her interactions with Jesus reveal new ways of understanding who Christ is and why Christ came. And so, God, as we prepare to hear the story that I'm sure many of us in the room have heard several times before, and maybe some of us have never heard before, God, would You reveal it to us in a new way? Would You allow these words to come alive for us in a compelling way that, that leaps off of the screens and off the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts so that they change the way that we live? God, we give You thanks for the gift of Your Son, Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. Okay, so beginning in verse 3 of chapter 4, it says this, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. So, He's leaving the area of Jerusalem and heading back into Galilee, and in between Jerusalem and Galilee is this land called Samaria. Today, we refer to it as the West Bank, just to give you sort of a geographical location, right? But he had to go through Samaria, it says. Yeah, it would have been a very long roundabout path to to not go through Samaria. He has to go through Samaria. And so he came to a Samaritan city called uh, Sichar. I believe that's right, but you don't know. So I'm just going to say Sichar, and you're going to believe me. There we go. Near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon, meaning it was hot, hottest part of the day. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I would have said, Jesus, you didn't say the right word. Please. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman, in Samaria? And then the Bible gives you a little hint. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep, where do you get that living water?" Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? So, there's a little bit of a double meaning happening here. Living water to the Samaritan woman means a a, a running stream, fresh water, right? That's why living water, it was moving, it was bubbling, right? And, And Jesus, obviously, is talking about something deeper on a spiritual level. The gospel of John is full of double meanings like that. She says, so are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water in the well. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water. See, he's playing with the living water metaphor. It will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, "'And come back.' The woman answered him, "'I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true.' And the woman said to him, "'Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem,' meaning at the temple." Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming,' He says, "'and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth,' meaning not tied to a physical location. "'For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him.'" God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. And just then His disciples came. They were astonished that He was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. And then it continues on and says this Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard of for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. So recently... um, there was a study conducted that, that found um, there is a new health crisis that is growing in our, uh, in our world. And, and I'm not speaking of the current outbreak of the coronavirus, which is awful, and we need to be in prayer for that. This is, this is a, 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 a health condition that a lot of people live with that actually has profound impacts on our health. It has the effect of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It also has the same impact on our bodies as someone who is a lifelong alcoholic. It takes years off of our lives and it does damage both physically and psychologically. And and in fact it, it's so common that I bet people here in this room right now in this very moment are struggling with this health condition. Do you want to know what it is? It's loneliness. It's loneliness. So my wife, Reagan heard this for the first time when she was listening to a podcast hosted by uh, Jen Hatmaker. Any Jen Hatmaker fans in the room? My wife is such a big fan. She has a shirt that says, Jen Hatmaker is my spirit animal. She wore it to an event that Jen Hatmaker was at. Jen did not file a restraining order for reasons beyond me. Um, For Christmas, I bought Reagan a hat and earrings that look just like Jen Hatmaker's thing because she wants to cosplay as Jen Hatmaker, I guess. I don't know. Um... So she was on this. She she has her podcast, and and she um, was talking with a woman named Shasta 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 Nelson, um, who's a, another Christian leader, and um, she devotes her ministry to understanding relationships and especially meaningful friendships, and she said that as she learned more about the health effects of loneliness, she discovered that doctors, when treating patients for obesity, chain smoking, or alcoholism, learned that in order to give their patients the best fighting chance at being successful in their health goals, they needed to get their patient to some friends, right? They had to break through this loneliness epidemic first. It's a powerful enemy in our lives, a lot of us in this room may feel, may feel lonely right now. You may have felt lonely this week or this month. And as we consider what it means to be a church who is reaching out in the same spirit that God's love reaches out, then we need to be able to address loneliness and realize that this is something that we have to be willing to attack head on. I bring that up because the woman at the well was lonely. Now, there's a lot that, that people have said about the woman at the well, and, and the reality is there's a lot that we don't know. Sometimes people confuse this story with the story of the adulterous woman, the woman that was about to be stoned to death, and Jesus says, uh, "Stop! He let who, who is without sin, cast the first stone." And then he tells the woman, "Go and sin no more." Right? That's not this story. Um, sometimes we try to read into the text that this woman was an adulteress, and we'll talk about the five husbands thing here in a second. Um, but what we do know is that she was visiting the well at noon. And whatever we want to assume about that, the reality is that most people don't go to wells at noon because it's hot, right, Texas? Imagine going to the well at noon on a hot summer day. Do you think a lot of folks are going to be joining you for that trip? No, that's a lonely experience. And and we know in the story that Jesus is sitting there and only she is mentioned. Nobody else is around. It's just the two of them. You know, why would she choose to willingly go by herself to the well at noon? That doesn't make a lot of sense unless she's a lonely person. Jesus is willing to risk a lot to break through that loneliness, right? Because a lot of times people who are lonely are not lonely by choice. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we make decisions in our lives that push people away, and we end up lonely as a result. But a lot of times people are lonely simply because uh, of systems around them or because the, 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 the life that they're caught in, and it's not a, a choice that they're making. Jesus had to be willing to cross some barriers to break through her loneliness. The first it mentions in the text is the fact that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. Why does this matter, right? We hear, you remember the story of the good Samaritan, right? Samaritans come up in the New Testament as people who were seen as kind of the enemies of the Jewish people. And the reason for that goes back several hundred years, back in like 700-ish BCE, when um, the Samaritan people, or who would become the Samaritan people in this northern land, were conquered by the Assyrians. And that sort of separated them from the Jewish people. As a result, they decided that they needed to have a new place of worship because worshiping was really tied to a physical location in those days. And so they began worshiping at a place called Mount Gerizim, when she says in here, our people used to worship, our people worship on this mountain, she's talking about this mountain that's right by this well, Mount Gerizim. And back in those days, the whole issue between the Jews and the Samaritans came down to this mountain that they were worshiping at versus the temple that the Jews worshiped at. It is a half a day's walk from the mountain to the temple, right? Think about how far you could go in a half a day's walk. Not very far, right? That's the distance that separated their beliefs, and yet for them, it was eternity, I brought this up in the story of Ruth, uh, but it bears repeating that, that I wonder those things that divide us today, how in 100, 500, 1,000 years will people look back and go, that's what you were worried about? That's what you thought was worth fighting and dying over? I mean, here's Mount Gerizim in the temple. It's a half a day's walk, and for the Jews and Samaritans, it was everything, right? That's the first boundary he had to break. The second was that he was a Jewish man and she was a foreign woman. These two things don't go together, right? A Jewish man wouldn't be expected to be seen talking to a foreign woman, especially a rabbi, right? Jesus is believed to be a great rabbi at this point in his ministry. A lot of people don't think he's the savior of the world. They think he's just a great rabbi. Rabbis don't talk to women, especially foreign women. That's a big no-no for a Jewish rabbi to do. Lastly, he asks her for a drink, which you might think is a relatively benign request. But in Jewish traditions and customs, everything is about maintaining cleanliness, right? you got to present yourself in the temple as clean and perfect and good, right? I would not have been allowed in to the Jewish temple, right? I would have been deemed unclean. Jesus, if he had received water out of a Samaritan drinking vessel from a Samaritan woman would have been so unclean they wouldn't have even let him breathe the same air as the temple. He wouldn't have been anywhere allowed anywhere close to it. The last thing, just to put a real fine point on how much Jesus is crossing boundaries and borders and dividing lines. In the previous chapter, chapter 3, John tells us that Jesus visits Nicodemus, who is one of the most highly regarded righteous men in the Jewish tradition. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a leader in the, in the Jewish faith. So he goes from chapter 3 meeting with this wise, old, respected Jewish leader to meeting with this unnamed, foreign, Samaritan woman who's at a well by herself at noon, right? I mean, in, in Jesus, for Jesus' Jewish audience, you could not have crossed a bigger chasm, right? That was quite the abyss to jump over, but Jesus does it. Jesus is willing to risk those things because he sees the potential for dignity and personhood and inclusion in this Samaritan woman. He sees her as more than just this worthless, unnamed figure that we, we don't even get her name, right? This is how little the Jewish people would have thought of her. But Jesus sees someone beloved. He sees somebody who's worth it. And he sees somebody whose story is worth hearing. We're going to hear more about that in a second. I think as Jesus followers, we have to be willing to cross the divisions that exist in our lives, right? As Jesus followers, we have to be willing to cross the divisions in our lives. And that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. You know why? Because the dividing lines that are set up for us in our lives are really easy to respect because they they make us feel safe, right? If you don't cross the dividing lines, you don't have to be with people that aren't like you. You can talk in echo chambers, and you can hang out with folks that think just the way you do, and look just the way you do, and live just the way you do, and believe just the way you do. And that's a really safe and easy place to be, right? right? If you've curated your social media feed to be just people who think exactly like you, man, those likes and loves start rolling in, right? You don't have to deal with the pesky trolls in the comment section, but that is not exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. I'm not saying you got to go and reach out to all the trolls in your life on social media. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do either. But I'm saying, in your life that you're living today, think critically. I had to do this for myself. Scott, how intentional are you about actually crossing the dividing lines in your life? How intentional are you about crossing the dividing lines of race or gender, sexuality, the dividing lines of class? That's one that we don't talk about a lot. The dividing lines of just culture, right? It sounds silly, but I like to hang out with people who have the same interests as me. It's hard for me to carry on with a conversation with someone who I don't have anything in common with. But if we're going to be a church and we're going to be Jesus followers who try to attack loneliness at its roots, we have to be willing to go and seek out the lonely people. And the reality is that you may not share a lot in common. It may make you uncomfortable at first. It may make me uncomfortable at first, but that's the kind of place that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to the well in Samaria at noon, right? to cross those dividing lines, to go to the difficult places. Second thing I want to say. So when I was a little kid, about Andy's age, maybe four or five, I had a really bad speech impediment. Sometimes it still flares up and I'll get stuck in a word like I kind of stutter or just have to move on, right? That word's not going to come out of my mouth. just going to move on, right? And um, it, at that time, I, I mispronounced words terribly. I, I was, it was honestly kind of hilarious. I would call Sesame Street Fweet Fweet right? Uh, it was cute, right? It, it, it was cute until like kindergarten, first grade, and you're like, Scott, buddy, time to start enunciating, right? Um, Lucky Charms was Yucky Farms, right? I preach for a living now, that's right. Um, Captain French was Captain Funch. I liked that one. Um, so one day, my aunt is picking me up from school. My, my aunt and my cousins lived like a mile down the road from me all my childhood. So she's picking me up from school, and she said, Scott, how was your day? You know, I'm telling her all about my day. And then, and then I was explaining to her what I'd had for lunch, and I said, Aunt Debbie, I had fwing seeds for lunch, for yunch. Fwing seeds for yunch. And she said, Fwing seeds? I said, No, Aunt Debbie, fwing seeds. She said, Scott, are you saying that you had fwing seeds for lunch? No, Aunt Debbie, fwing seeds. She said, Scott, I, 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 I understand that you're saying fwing seeds, but I don't think I know what you mean. I, Fwing seeds. I said, Aunt Debbie, weed my whips. Yike, a wope, Fwing seeds. And she goes, Oh, string cheese, right? String cheese. I said, Yes, yike, I said, Fwing seeds. When, you're, when you don't feel like you're being heard, it can be incredibly frustrating, right? Have you ever been in a position, work, home, life, friends, whatever, family, Thanksgiving, where you didn't feel like you were being heard? you felt like you were the five-year-old in the car saying no yike a whoa swing seeds it's so aggravating to feel like you're not being heard i had to learn this in my own life how many of us in the room are are quick fixers right someone starts telling you their problems and you want to fix it immediately well what you ought to do is right anybody confession time who's a quick fixer yeah I'm terrible at that. I'm so bad. It, it, whenever people start telling me what's going on, I just want to fix it. I just want to make it better. And yet, I've had to learn, especially in my own marriage, thank you, Reagan, um, that that's not always the best approach, right? Here's a great episode of Parks and Rec where one of the characters has to learn that um, the, the, the woman that he's with does not really want him to fix everything. Uh, in, in fact, all she wants him to say is, That stinks. I'm sorry. Four words, right? That stinks. I'm sorry, right? Four words. That that right there is a sermonette that'll save your life, Uh, married couples in the room. Someone needs to hear that. Say amen, somebody, right? That stinks. I'm sorry. Say it with me now, right? Um... There are times when people simply need to be heard, right? Reagan doesn't need me to fix her life. She just needs me to recognize that it's hard, that it stinks, that I'm really sorry that she's in it, right? She'll figure it out. She's pretty smart, right? I'm not that smart. I think I am when it's not me in the middle of the mess, right? Um, Some people just need to be heard. There have been times when you've just needed to be heard. You didn't need someone to fix it for you. Jesus does the same thing for this woman, right? He doesn't try to fix her whole life in one conversation. He sits down with her, and let's talk about the five husbands thing for a second, because he says, go and get your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not even your husband now. Like I said before, people at times will read into the story that that means that she was uh, divorced multiple times, which is hard to, to believe since women didn't really have the autonomy to, to ask for divorce in those days in the Jewish culture. Or maybe it was that she was supposed to be seen as something of an adulteress, but if you're an adulteress, you're not getting married five times, right? The word's going to be out on that, and that, and that, that that's not going to happen. It's, it's more likely one a couple of things. Number one, it, there was a historical practice called leveret marriage, right? And this is what Ruth. If you remember the Ruth story from a couple weeks ago. This is what Ruth participates in when she goes and finds Boaz, a next of kin for her deceased husband. In those days, as a woman, if your husband died, you had to go to the brother, or the next brother, or the uncle, and hope that they took you in as one of their wives, right? And so the the likely reality is that she had just been widowed time and time and time again. Now, another way you could read this is that she's supposed to be kind of a metaphor for the people of Samaria, who had been conquered over and over and over again, and yet still were not in relationship, were not wed to the God of the the Israelite people, right? So, there's two ways that you can understand this, both historically or metaphorically. Here's the point in sharing that with you. Jesus doesn't try to fix that life, right? That life does not sound like a fun one to live. That sounds like she's had a really difficult life, and it's led to her being at a well at noon. And Jesus is the the God of the cosmos, right? He's God incarnate. He has every power in his fingertips, and he doesn't fix it all for her in that moment. What does he do instead? He listens to her. He engages with her questions and her conversations. You know what's interesting is that he has the longest conversation in the entire New Testament. All of the Gospels, the longest one-on-one conversation that Jesus has is with this Samaritan woman. He hears her out. He answers her questions, even if they sound a little silly, right? She doesn't really get who he is at first, but he keeps talking. And he shows her that he knows who she is. He, he tells her her story without even her having to share it with him. He understands her in a deep and meaningful way, and that is what brings her to faith, Right? being heard, being seen. Have you ever felt like you weren't heard? Have you ever felt like you weren't seen? Or seen but not for who you really were? That's a painful place to be. How life-giving is it when you find someone who sees you and hears you for real? How does that feel? It feels good, I hate being in, in parties where it's just small talk and, and everybody's just asking about the weather, talking about how whatever sports team is going, and nobody's seeing each other or hearing. Does anybody else just get beaten down by that life, man? I, I just, I can't stand it. I love having meaningful conversations with people. I love uh, being able to look someone in the eyes and hear their story and them hear my story and to, and to know each other. That, that feels good, and that's what Jesus is calling us to. You know, when we cross these dividing lines, when we reach out to people and try to include them in, they've got a story that we can't assume. There's a lot you could assume about the Samaritan woman, but, but Jesus is calling us to hear people out and to hear their story from themselves, to understand them in a deep and meaningful way. And that's hard work, right? Right? That's hard work. On our corner of our street right now, we've got the dividing lines that we see at our church, that millennials and boomers, right, are united in love. That's a big one right now. How, how important is it that if we're going to try to bring millennials and boomers together, do we have deep, meaningful conversations and hear each other's stories, and, and for the millennials to recognize the value and experience and wisdom from our more experienced and wise generation, right? And how important is it for those who are more experienced, our boomers and, and up, to hear the new visions and new approaches and new perspectives that younger people can bring? We have black and white People are united on our, on our corner. We have signs up that say black and white are united. How important is it for us to really hear and see one another and to not make assumptions about what it means to live as a black person or a Latino person or a Middle Eastern person here in the States or, or how we can't make assumptions about what it means to live as a white person either. We have to be willing to have these conversations and to hear and see one another or else we won't actually have anything meaningful develop as a result. We'll just have a whole bunch of assumptions in a room, and that's not helpful. The last one, Democrat and Republican, we put that one up, right? It's 2020, y'all buckle on up, right? It's going to be a bumpy ride. You're going to have to curate that social media feed a little bit more. But let's just name that. We're in a season where it's, it, it's just getting worse, and here's the deal. The political machine is not going to save us, right? Right? There's not going to be a candidate that comes up and says, hey, actually, we, we should all just ha- hold hands and get along, right? It, they, they, they work because they want people as polarized as possible. They want people in their camps, Right? Now, now, I'm not disparaging any one candidate. Right now, I'm kind of disparaging them all because I see every time we do this election thing, I see people put their hopes in these candidates, and and yes, you can hope for change and you can put your trust in candidates that you think are worthy, but let me tell you something. The political system of the United States of America is not going to build the kingdom of God. It's just not. We can't look for it to. That's not why it's designed. And if we as as Jesus followers are going to be content to live within that system and just polarize our friends and family that disagree with us and to see them as the enemy, then, then, then my friends, we're not really following Jesus like we could and should. And I'm talking to myself right now. I'm talking to myself because I love being right. And I can't stand having to be in dialogue with people that I think are dead wrong. It kills me. It's so energy draining. It takes so much effort for me to be in those conversations. But I do it because I love Jesus enough. And I know that Jesus is more right than I am. And Jesus tells me I need to do this kind of hard work. All right. man, I'm getting excited. Okay. Let's drink some coffee. Recharge. So Jesus' example reminds us that as Jesus' followers, we have to cross divisions and we have to listen closely. We have to listen closely with an empathetic ear. Don't listen just so you can think of the next smart thing to say. Right? Some of us are good at that we got to listen with the empathetic ear that says, what are they really saying? What is this person's story? What are my assumptions that I need to kill right now? What are, the, what are the hopes and dreams that they're trying to share with me that I really need to listen to? But the story of the Samaritan woman doesn't stop at the Well. Right? She continues on and she she returns to her people. She goes home and and she actually proves to be one of the very first evangelists in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is the first one to preach about Jesus. Then it says his disciples evangelize for Jesus, and then right after them is this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Right? Anyone thinks that women shouldn't be allowed to preach, you to read their Bible again, right? She be yeah. Woo! Thank you, Reagan. That was a little I got brownie points for that one. Yeah. Um, Listen, her evangelism is powerful for two reasons, two reasons, and and, and these are my last couple of points this morning. The first is the simplicity of what she shares. First, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. What I hear her saying is, come and see a man who, who knows me, the real me, the one that none of you want to go to the well at noon with. Come see this guy. I think that's powerful because I think sometimes we believe that in order to share the gospel, to be a witness, to evangelize, who that's a dirty word in a Methodist church, to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people around us, we believe that we've got to be experts in theology. <gasps> what if they ask me about God? What if they ask me about, you know, who Jesus is and the, Trini- the Trinity and all that kind of stuff? Guess what? To share the gospel, you don't need to be an expert in God's work in the universe. You just need to know about God's work in you. To share the gospel, you don't need to be an expert in God's work in the universe. Someone comes to you and says, why do bad things happen if God's real? Tell them, that's a great question that theologians have been trying to answer for 2,000 years. Ask one of them. Go read a thick book, right? You just need to know about God's work in you. Let me tell you about this, this Savior who knows me, the real me, and who loves me where I am. So I was at a retreat of sorts with some other young clergy in the region, and and we were asked to reflect on the origins of our call to ministry and what it felt like to be called to serve Jesus as as pastors in the church. And for me, my call to ministry very much coincided with coming to faith in Jesus, and it all happened in like my 7th and 8th grade years in junior high, right? Um, So that my cousins and my aunt, who I told you lived a mile down the road from me growing up, Uh, In the summer of my seventh and eighth grade year, in that summer in between, uh, they moved uh, to Mississippi. Uh, to be closer to my grandparents, and like my cousins uh, were my, my everything, they were like my brother and sister, one of my cousins was six months younger than me, so we were like twins, people thought we were twins all the time, and, and so I, I, they were my friend group, they were the people who saw me and knew me, and they were my, they were my family, right, they, they were very much my family, and so when they left, it was like losing a part of me, it was like losing part of my nuclear family. And at the same time, I found, this, we, I found myself getting more plugged in at church, and I found these leaders who were willing to love me in my really weird, afro-headed, brace-faced, yellow Converse mess, right? Like, I was a mess. But they loved me, and they encouraged me, and, and they became my friends and my family, and I understood what the love of Jesus meant because I felt it through them right? And so then I was at a, at a retreat with, with the youth, and, and we were in a worship setting, and, and all of a sudden I just felt this stirring within me of, you know, Scott, you know what it feels like to belong. You know what it feels like to be included, to be safe and secure, when in your world in eighth grade, you feel insecure and confused and everything, but, but this is where you feel all those feelings, that you, all the love you need to feel. You've got to do something about this. And that's when I felt like, man, there's nothing I can do except just serve Jesus in some capacity. Now, that's a simple story, right? It's meaningful to me. But when I talk to people about Jesus, you know, how helpful is it for me to explain the hypostatic union to them? Or my soteriology or eschatology or all these fancy words they teach you in seminary. None of that has ever helped me in an, in an initial conversation with someone about my faith. What is helpful is, you know, I know what it feels like to be depressed and insecure and confused and to feel like my family has gone and to not know who loves me. And, and let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the love that I found at church. Let me tell you about what it means to belong and to feel that warmth and to know that no matter what I've done or no matter who I am, if I wanted to have an Afro for the rest of my life, it would be a little more difficult today. They were going to love me all along the way. That, that's who I want to tell you about. Right? You don't need to be an expert in God's work in the universe. You just need to know about God's work in you. The story of the Samaritan woman teaches us that Jesus' followers cross divisions, they listen closely, and they speak authentically. You might think that your story of faith is simple, but guess what? It matters and somebody needs to hear it. I guarantee you God's put it, God has put someone in your life that needs to hear your story, even if you think it's simple and forgettable. The woman at the well story wasn't crazy. It wasn't out of this world. She met a man who knew her. She told people about him. And then here's the best part. This is the second part of her of her witness that I think is so powerful. She ends it with a question she ends it with the question. She says, could this be the Messiah? That's how her witness ends. It's not a definitive declaratory statement of Jesus is the Messiah. Come and see the Savior of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. No, she says, could could this be the Messiah? This guy that knows everything about me, that knows my story, that knows my worth, do you think he's the one? I think that's so cool because I think ending with a question is powerful because I think that questions invite relationship, right? Her question invited them to come and see too. What, what do you make of him? What, what do you think? Right? I think about in my own life, uh, the relationships that I have, the, the people who, who are able to ask really good questions of me, that invites conversation. That invites relationship, especially when it's people who are different than me. I went to a high school where 40 different languages were spoken on campus. There were all sorts of different people in that crazy, diverse school. And one thing that I learned really well there was that it's okay to ask questions, even the difficult, awkward ones. In fact, sometimes the awkward ones are the elephants in the room that people are just waiting for you to ask. Just ask it so we can move forward, right? Questions invite relationship, and as Jesus followers, if we're going to cross divisions, if we're going to listen closely to people, if we're going to speak authentically about ourselves, we've also got to be ready to ask the right questions. The Samaritan woman asks the right question, do you think this could be the Messiah? And then what happens? They go, they see, they hear, and what do they tell her? We believe now, not because of anything you said, What you said just got us to him, right? We believe because of our relationship with Jesus. We've now heard for ourselves. We've now seen for ourselves. We know who Jesus is for ourselves. It is not your job to save anybody, right? Because you're not Jesus. When we get outside these walls, our job is to ask the right questions, to, to be in relationship with folks that are not like us, and to invite them and say, could this be Jesus? to share that love of God in a way that's invitational and relational and to ask the right questions. If we want the church to be a diverse collection of people rooted in common mission and love of God, we have to be willing to address our differences and different perspectives. We can't sit in here and pretend that we're all alike. In fact, the gift of this place is that we're not. We've got to be willing to ask the right questions. You've got to ask questions like, why do you feel that way? Have you ever have somebody share something with you and you honestly are thinking, like, what are they thinking? Well, what if you just asked them, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? What might come out of their mouth? What brings you to that understanding? Who is Jesus to you? Or, or what does this belief mean to you? What's challenging you right now? What are you afraid of? What gives you hope? Where do you find peace? See, we can make assumptions about why people are the way that they are, but every time I've talked to somebody and learned their story, I've always learned there's so much more to a person than our assumptions. But it takes asking the right questions to get there. The story of the Samaritan woman teaches us that Jesus' followers cross divisions, listen closely, speak authentically, and ask the right questions. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This unnamed saint, the Samaritan woman, She has a story worth remembering today and a question that's as pressing as ever. Could this be the Messiah? This man who challenges assumptions and reorients our understandings, who offers more life than we've bargained for and requires nothing less than the death of all that we've known, who asks inviting questions and meets us in real relationship in return. Could this be the Messiah? And church, if He is, are we willing to follow in His footsteps? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we give you thanks to this unnamed saint of the gospel of John, the Samaritan woman whom everyone was willing to write off as less than, as other, as enemy, as forgotten. But Jesus saw her and heard her, and Engaged with her and challenged her and answered her questions and offered her grace and love and dignity. And in so doing, created one of the first evangelists, one of the first mouths to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though she didn't have it all figured out. She wasn't as educated as Nicodemus, she wasn't as learned as the scholars of the Jewish tradition, but she knew Jesus. And she knew Jesus and what he meant for her life. God, as we consider what it means to be a church united through your mission and through your love, call us to recognize that that our diversity is a gift. But we have to be willing to step into those uncomfortable places into those lonely places to reach out and ask the right questions and to listen well and to speak authentically about who we are and who Jesus is to us. God, grant us the courage to be people that find the well at noon and spark up a conversation with the only woman sitting there. Call us to cross those boundaries and borders and dividing lines. Don't allow us to kneel at the altar of divisiveness, but instead to reach out, to invite others to ask the right questions, to find for themselves who you are and what your love means to them. Thank you for this story and the way in which your scriptures always speak new life to us every time we open them up. All this we pray in the name of your precious and holy and resurrected Son. In the name of Jesus. Amen.